welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Today we're going to be in the book of Jonah in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. I titled this uh, message today, I titled it, uh, Repentance Looks Like Something. Repentance Looks Like Something. I had an alternative title. The alternative title was Never Break a Bad Habit. Never break a bad habit, which is, I, I kind of adapted that from John Ortberg. Um, I like that one because it's kind of catchy. Like, well, what does that mean? Never break a bad habit. But I went with this one because it so fits the text. It fits the fact that God was looking for something in Jonah. He was looking for something in the Assyrians. And the question is, did he find it? Because what God was looking for in them, he's also looking for in us. Right? So we're going to be in Jonah. You can turn there. Um, I, I do think this, let me just kind of tease this out a little bit. I think today has the potential to be profoundly helpful for every person here. Whether you're gathering here on campus, whether you're gathering online, I believe, not because of me, but because of what I'm seeing and here and what God's been stirring in us as we've been praying about our time together, I believe this can be profoundly helpful. If you've ever found yourself um, stuck in a behavior that you want to change, something that you, you recognize is not good, it's not good for you, it's not good for others, it's not, it's not right for, with God, and there's something you want to change, but you feel powerless to change it. Maybe you're stuck in a cycle and it just keeps playing over and over. Today could be profoundly helpful, especially if, 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 you, if the things that you want to change have to do with your life as a follower of Jesus. If this, you know, last week we talked about sanctification and being not only saved, but formed in the image of Christ completely. That if, if what you're longing for is something that's moving you closer to the image of Christ, today could be profoundly helpful. So we're going to turn to, the, to Jonah, and um, I'll put up this slide that we've used. This is just kind of a, a summary slide, and I'm not going to go into the detail of, of what this represents, but big picture, Jonah, is, he's a prophet who lives at that middle red dot in Israel. And God has sent him. He's commissioned him to go to Nineveh, which you can see the green dot up there in Assyria. God's commissioned him to go because God says, their wickedness has come up before me. There's a few times in scripture, uh, especially throughout the Old Testament, there's a couple times where God says, the evil and the violence, the wickedness has risen of this people collectively. It's risen like a flood until it's reached heaven. And, And it's unacceptable for me to not do something about it, for me to not intervene. God says that the violence and the wickedness, the violence that they inflict on one another, the violence they are inflicting on other nations, it's gotten so bad, I have to intervene. And so God commissions Jonah. He says, Jonah, I want you to go out and cry out against them, cry out against their evil, cry out against their wickedness. But here, he says, give them the message that I tell you. And there's a little catch with that because what God doesn't want He doesn't want Jonah to give the message that's been percolating in Jonah's heart because he's got a message too. But it's different than God's. And so God says, I want you to give the message that I tell you. 
So here, we left off last week. Jonah had just arrived after uh, an extended detour. He had arrived finally in Nineveh. It's a 500 plus mile journey. He's arrived uh, looking and smelling half digested. And it's a journey, this 500 mile journey that he made, it was with grudging compliance, not with enthusiastic obedience. Grudging compliance, not enthusiastic obedience. And his opposition, the reason that he's resistant to going on this trip is because uh, God is sending him in order to warn them, in order to warn the Assyrians that if they don't change, he's going to send judgment. That he's he's giving them a a window in which they can repent. It's it's at the end of of where they are right now, and it's a narrow window. But Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with that. Jonah, here's what he'd rather. He'd rather that God just start smiting. And he doesn't want them to have any warning, any forewarning, any opportunity to repent. He just wants God to smite. And if God just wanted to smite, God doesn't need to send Jonah. There's no need to send Jonah. There's no need for a 40-day warning. God's heart is different. God's heart is mercy. He has to intervene because what's happening is wrong. It is evil. It is destructive. He has to intervene, but he'd prefer to intervene with mercy, not with judgment. Judgment triumph, or mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's resume in chapter three. We're going to pick up with Jonah's entire sermon, which is eight words long. You're not going to get away with that today. Eight words long, beginning in verse four. It goes like this. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. Today's passage has a progression. It's, it's a progression from general to specific. So this first paragraph we just read is a summary of what happened in, in the wake of Jonah's eight-word sermon. And so generally speaking, here's what happened. Um, the people of Nineveh, they, it says they believed, they fasted, and they mourned, and it was all of them. From the least to the greatest, from the greatest to the least. Okay, we're going to see the details of how that came about in just a minute. But first of all, just to consider the shocking nature of this. It's a shocking development. And Jonah would hope for any response except for this. Jonah would be okay with being ignored. He'd be okay with them falling asleep. He'd be okay with being ridiculed. He, he would even be okay with being abused, which he would actually expect to be abused for this. Harassed. I've wondered if maybe Jonah was a gambler. He, not in the sense of like playing the slots or something like that, but maybe he spent this 500-mile journey calculating the odds of whether or not they might repent. Because if he did, he's probably convinced himself, you know what, they're, they're not. Even if we give them a chance, they're not going to repent. The odds are really slim. I mean, after all, these are not a people that anyone, anyone would imagine that these people are spiritually ripe for repentance. Listen, this is how Pastor Mike described the, the, the city of, of Nineveh as Jonah arrived there last week. Mike said this, and so... The beached and bleached prophet, (laughs) formerly a dark-skinned Palestinian, but now we would surmise his skin bleached white by the stomach acids of the great fish. Yes, the beached and bleached prophet breaches the towering walls of Nineveh. Walls no doubt decorated with the flayed skin of executed multitudes. As he then walks along streets lined with severed heads on pikes, 
alongside the impaled bodies of unfortunate captives, some perhaps still squirming, others perhaps hanging torturously as they are suspended between heaven and earth, nailed alive to wooden posts in the newly devised torture called crucifixion. That's not just Pastor Mike's imagination. That's historical and archaeological fact about the violence. When God says that the wickedness and the violence of the Assyrians has risen to me, this is the conditions of their city. This is how they treated people. No one would think that the people who live in and have created that city are ripe for repentance. Not only that, Jonah may be a gambler. He's not just playing the odds. He's also stacking the deck. We talked about this a little bit last week. But he's stacking the deck. He's trying to make sure that they, that they don't win. The win would be repentance, right? But he stacked the deck by withholding some key parts in his sermon, by abbreviating the message that God's told him to speak, shortening down to eight words. He's left out what they're supposed to repent of. He doesn't talk about what they've done. He's left out what repentance would look like should they want to. And most importantly, he's withheld the promise that if they repent, God will relent. He hasn't given the full message that God gave him to give. By withholding all of that, he's stacking the deck. And here's the potential win for Jonah. The potential win for Jonah is that if they don't repent, he's going to be there to witness the devastation firsthand. This, for the Hebrew prophet, is the Super Bowl. Like, this is like a bucket list thing. To get to be there, to see God throw down judgment on a foreign violent nation, like he, he, that's, that's the win. He's consoling himself in the midst of something he'd rather not do with a potential win. Look at the te- what the text tells us. The issue is not that Jonah's pursuing them, it's that God's pursuing them. The text doesn't say they believed Jonah and they repented. What does it say? I underline it for you. They believed God. This wholehearted response to Jonah's abbreviated message, it indicates that God was awakening something in the people. This, this is nothing less than a spiritual awakening of a people who don't know God at all. This is, this is miraculous. This is as much of a miracle as what happened in chapter one when God appointed a, a great storm and threw it at the Phoenician boat, as when he appointed a great fish to come and save Jonah. This is as much miracle as we're going to see in chapter four when we get to the miraculous shrub and the miraculous worm. In between those, we have this thing sandwiched here. This is the biggest miracle of all. If, if, you, if it's hard for you to believe in what happened with the big fish, well, this is even more miraculous than that because this is wholesale repentance of a people you would have never expected it from. It also explains the meme that archaeologists found inscribed on a wall in ancient Assyria. looks something like this. How it started and how it went. You thought that was a TikTok thing or an Instagram thing. No, it's the Assyrians that came up with how it started, how it went. Nothing's new under the sun. All right, let's turn to 3.6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, now we're getting into the specifics of how this repentance actually played out. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, 
covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. Again, here we get into the specifics and it begins with the king and with the leadership of the nation. And if you're a historian who studied Assyrian kings and Assyrian culture, you would know just how unlikely this whole thing is. It's incredible. This is wholesale repentance of a people who seemed very distant from God. This, this repentance that we're about to read about, this is, or we're, we, we have read, this is on a scale that didn't even happen in Israel. Okay, this is massive repentance. It starts with the king arising from his throne. He has personal repentance. This is humility. We talked last week about salvation and sanctification. We said that salvation and sanctification is when we surrender our lives to God and we say, God, would you be enthroned in my life? It's like saying, I don't want to be the king of my little fiefdom anymore. I know I've been rebellious. I've done it wrong. I want you to have your appropriate place in my life. You be enthroned in my heart. The king's literally doing that. He's getting off of his throne He's taking off his royal robe. He's putting on sackcloth. He's sitting in ashes. He's personally repenting. And then he makes a proclamation to the whole nation. This is the proclamation to everybody else after he has personally repented and his leadership repents. By the decree of the king and his nobles, verse 7, no human or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed. They shall not drink water. Humans and animals shall be covered with sackcloth and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? He's guessing because Jonah didn't tell them. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. The king doesn't stop with personal repentance. He goes on to, to lead the people in repentance. And it's, and it's all of the things that look like repentance in their culture. So they're, they're, wearing, they're putting on sackcloth. This is like coarse, rough, goat hair type clothing that's really uncomfortable. And when people see somebody wearing sackcloth, they know, oh, that person's in mourning or that person's in repentance. That person's grieving. It's kind of like we might wear black to a funeral, right? It's an outward sign that tells people what's happening inwardly. You see somebody dressed all in black, either they're mourning or they're a goth. So you got to figure it out, Right? And in their case, if you saw somebody wearing sackcloth, they're repenting. So he does that. He asks everybody else that. And then he declares an absolute fast. And this is radical. Okay, there, there's fasting and there's absolute fasting. You might fast something periodically. Maybe, maybe you've given up something for Lent. So you fasted from sugar. Or you fasted from carbohydrates. Or you fasted from Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Giving this up for Jesus, Right? <laughs> There's, there's different kinds of fasting. An absolute fast is you don't eat anything. You don't eat a thing. And not only that, in an absolute fast, you don't drink anything. So this isn't not like liquid meals or protein shakes, not even coffee, not even water. The king declares an absolute fast for all the people and their animals, the sheep, the cows, the cats, the dogs, absolute fast. He says, cry out for God. And then he, one more thing, he says, let each person turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. This response that the king makes, the king initiates, the people follow, 
This is, this is something that Jonah's contemporaries, the other prophets in Israel and Judah, they would be green with envy, as we say, over this. Like this, this is the preacher's equivalent of, of hitting the lottery. Eight words in wholesale repentance. Think about the ministries of like Isaiah and Jeremiah or, or like Ezekiel, what Ezekiel and Hosea had to do in order to, to do their ministry. Like they're all like, hey, I will trade you. <laughs> we'll see what Jonah thought about it next week. This week, we're, our, our final verse in Jonah is what God thought about it. Here's what God saw. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What did God see in them? That, what did he see that made him change what he said he would do? It's really important. Did he see, oh my gosh, they put on their grubbiest clothes, their most uncomfortable clothes. They're sitting in ashes. They're starving the dog, right? They took the cat's water bowl. Oh my goodness. I should relent. All of those things are fine because they're the, they're the, the sign that repentance might be there. But apart from change, what did God see? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do, and he did not do it. Repentance that stops short of change is not true repentance. All that other stuff is just symbols. It's decorations that indicate repentance might be there. Just like somebody going to a funeral wearing black might be mourning, or they might be secretly happy that she's finally gone. Right? <laughs> You don't really know what the outward trappings. What you're looking for is true, true grieving, true repentance. Paul writes about this thing, this very thing. He writes about two kinds of sorrow when he writes a follow-up letter to a church in Corinth. I'll just give you a little bit of background. Paul had already written a letter to the church in Corinth, and it was a hard letter to write and an even harder letter to read. We would say it was a, it was a crucial conversation. Paul had to address some, some really uh, uncomfortable and painful things directly, but they responded to it really well. So this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 7. He said, now I'm glad I sent it, meaning that previous letter. I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change. It caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. Let me read that again. The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, which doesn't, doesn't mature into change, Worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Paul says there's a kind of sorrow that's just human sorrow. It's just worldly sorrow. It stalls out in regret and sorrow for the consequences, but it never matures into repentance and change. And that kind of sorrow, he alludes to this a couple times, it can actually do harm. Like when, you've, when, when you commit to doing something, you make promises to yourself, you make promises to a loved one, make promises to God about something that you're going to change. When you don't do it, what, is it, what happens? 
Personally, you become cynical, depressed, despondent. The people around you, it, it, it hardens the relationships. The behavior that you're trying to stop keeps going. In fact, oftentimes the behavior that you want to stop, if you don't actually change, it actually gets harder to stop. It actually gets more deeply ingrained, doesn't it? Have you ever had a, a habit that you wanted to break and you were trying to break it, but you couldn't do it? You kept promising that you were going to break it, but it just kept getting deeper. This like the groove that you were in just kept getting deeper and deeper, more deeply ingrained. That's worldly sorrow. What you experienced was worldly sorrow. God has something different than that. Godly sorrow does not harm because it moves beyond regret and shame and results in change. It results in inward change, outward change. is something you can see on the outside often, but it's also inward change. It's actually transformation. It's what we talked about last week of sanctification. It's being formed more closely to be in the image of Christ. The fruit of godly sorrow is much different than the fruit of worldly sorrow. One more letter from Paul. One more letter. This one's from Romans. And in this, I want you, I want you to see this. We're going to unpack this because Paul gives three practical steps. If you want to move from human sorrow, worldly sorrow, to godly sorrow. If you want to experience actual life change. If you don't want to just settle for trying to break a habit, but you want to actually experience change. Paul says, well, here, there's three things you need to do. And there's actually a progression. We're going to turn there. This is in, um, in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read it. In the same way, count or consider, some translations say consider, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself. Which parts? Every part. He's talking about our bodies, our members, our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts, our spirit, our soul. Offer every part to him as an instrument of righteousness, of right living, living that pleases God, that, that, that reflects his image faithfully. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Do you see that for the follower of Jesus, who has the indwelling spirit living inside of you, you've been born again, spiritually reborn. There's something so much more powerful than worldly sorrow, than making promises that you're never able to keep. Paul's coaching them on how to mature in their sanctification. And he summarized their godly sorrow in, in three parts. He said, true repentance looks like this. So first of all, here's what I've done. I just took that same paragraph and I just broke it down into three parts. I'm just going to reread those in, in three parts. So the first one, consider yourselves. In the same way, count or consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. This means consider the fact that you are born again that you have a new nature. This is all represented in our, when we're baptized, we, we're died to our old self. We're resurrected to new life. We're washed, we're cleansed. God places his spirit inside of us. We're a new creation. That's the language of, the, of scripture, is that when you surrender your life to God, you're made a new creation. You're born again. So consider that you're born again, you have a new nature, and you're not mastered by sin, but instead you're empowered by grace. Here's the starting place. It's not 
I'm just going to try harder this time. This time's going to be different. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do it better. See, that's worldly sorrow because it's, it comes from self-power. Godly repentance, godly sorrow looks upward and says, God, my hope is that you can do this in me. My hope is that what you began in me, you've promised to finish. And the power of your indwelling spirit is more powerful than the indwelling sin of who I was. So I'm going to believe that I can change. I'm not going to submit to a cynicism that says, I can't ever change in this. I'm going to have hope in what you might do. I'm going to read that one more time. The power of God's indwelling spirit is more powerful than the indwelling sin of who you once were. Secondly, so that's the first thing. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. Secondly, there's something you need to stop. Therefore, do not let, rain, let, not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. He makes it so simple, doesn't he? Now, this is not the last step. This is why, this is why I, I was tempted to call this message never try to break a bad habit because when that's all you're doing, then it stops right here. There's a third step. But he does say you do have to stop it. Stop offering your body any part of yourself to sinful behaviors, to sinful thoughts, habits, patterns. We all have habits and patterns that are deeply ingrained, ways of responding. This step of stopping, this sincere commitment, saying, I'm going to stop doing that thing. It's crucial because it's the turning. Again, when God saw what they did, he saw how they turned. They had to stop doing the violence that was in their hand in order to turn and go a different direction right? God saw they turned. Well, without stopping, you can't turn. Without stopping, you're likely to settle for worldly sorrow and unchanged lives. And then he gives a last step. So consider, stop, and then something to start. But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So point number three, stop offering your body or start offering your body every part of yourself to godly behaviors, thoughts, new habits, and patterns. John Ortberg, I referenced him earlier. He, he uh, in reflecting on scripture, what he learns about from Jesus, what he learns from Paul, and also the writings of Dallas Willard, he's the one that said, most recently I heard this, he said, never try to break a bad habit, but you instead replace it. In line with this, don't just resist the bad habit, replace it. And the reason why is because habits are deeply ingrained. You can, you can have a habit that you stop for a period of time, but it's so deeply ingrained. This is what, what uh, human scientists and behaviorists would tell us, that it's, the habits are so deeply ingrained, you can pick up one back up like that, even if you've not done it for years. It's why, you know, when I first learned to drive a stick shift, it was very, I had to be very intentional about it, right? It's a very complicated process. You have to think about it. Today, I can drive here in my truck, in a stick shift truck, without, I, I don't even mean to drive here. I'm just here. It's a deeply ingrained habit. You ever done that? You found yourself at a place you didn't intend to go because you were just on cruise control? That's the power of a deeply ingrained habit. I, I didn't drive my truck almost at all for three months while I was on sabbatical because I was driving with Andrea in her car. I picked it right back up. 
Habits are deeply ingrained. So don't just try and resist a habit, bad habit, replace it. So all this becomes really practical. Maybe you were here last week, and we, this is kind of like sanctification part two. Last week, we talked about sanctification. We ended with just asking God, God, are there things that you're wanting to shape in me right now to make me more like Jesus? What, what's the process? What's the next step in my journey to being completely remade to be like you? What's the next step? Some of, the, some of that was surfaced for you. Maybe you weren't here last week, but you know what that is. You, you sense there's something that God is, is inviting you to change, something that you long to change. Let me give you some, some helpful, I'm just going to unpack that. How do you choose godly sorrow and true repentance? Well, first of all, there's the mindset. It's considering that you have access to empowering grace. Consider this. Again, the beginning place isn't making a, a new promise. It's turning your heart and mind upwards and saying, God, would you help? Would you give me today the daily manna I need? Would you give me self-control? There's a passage in Titus 2 where, where Paul's writing to the, the Cretans and he says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce, that's stopping, training us to renounce uh, unrighteous living and, and, un, and ungodly habits and to live instead lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. There's a spirit-empowered self-control that's different than willpower. Paul says, consider that, anchor into that Consider what you've learned along the way. Consider what you've learned about how this behavior affects you, how it affects other people. It's not going to change. Doing the same thing over and over, it's not going to change. So start with considering that and then stop offering yourself to sin. And here's the thing the behaviorists will tell us. They tell us that the, the most effective time to interrupt an unwanted behavior is at the first point of temptation. He said, let me unpack that a little bit and make it with something that's re really obvious. Let's say you want to stop eating ice cream every night at 10 o'clock. Okay. Stop eating ice cream every night at 10 o'clock. When's the easiest time to have self-control, spirit-led self-control over that choice? It's at the grocery store, right? It's when you're filling your cart. When you're filling your cart and you're deciding, am I going to put the gallon of Tillamook in my cart it's going to require this much spirit-led self-control to say no. If you buy it and you take it home and 10 o'clock at night, you open your freezer and it's sitting there looking at you, it's going to require this much self-control, right? The most important time to stop the habit you want to change is at the point of first temptation. Let me talk about a, something a little more serious. What about Pornography. So many people in our culture, men and, and not just men, but men and women alike, are enslaved to pornography. And, and, and people are, are desperate to break it. And if that's you this morning, I want to say there's, there's grace for that. And, and you're, you're not alone. There's many people who are struggling with that. And, and we actually have a, a partnership, a ministry partnership with somebody who specializes in that. If you would like specialized help with that, like, talk to me. I'll, I'll email me, grab me, whatever. I'll, 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 I'll refer you. But let me just say this. If, you have, if you're trying to stop, there's an easier point. Like, is the easier time is not when you've got your phone out and you've got your access to all of this online pornography. It's before you ever take it out, right? It's, it's e it, it takes this much self-control. It takes self-control, spirit-led self-control. 
So Titus tells us, takes this much to never pull out your phone or never turn on your computer when you're in private. Once it's out and you're trying to choose which site you go to, it's going to require this much. So Paul says, if, if you want to stop, consider yourselves empowered by God, but recognize there's an appropriate time to stop. If you're enslaved to that and you have a smartphone, get a dumb phone. Really. I mean, honestly, like you're walking around with a computer in your pocket. What are the chances that you're going to fall? Set yourself up to succeed. Stop going there, right? Or, or if, if you access it when you're on your computer in private, make yourself a policy that you never open your computer when there's not other people around, right? It, it will take this much self-control to never open your computer when there's not other people around. It will take this much to be in private and go to the right sites and not just be following the same habits you've done. Driving. If you're trying to stop having thoughts of envy, jealousy, contempt, or pity when you're engaging on social media, here's a new one. This is a la one last one. You have this experience, you get on social media, whatever your preferred platform is, and everything that it stirs up in you is largely negative. You see what other people are doing and it stirs up envy. You see people you don't like anymore and it stirs up contempt. You see people you disagree with and it stirs up animosity. They're so stupid. Envy, greed, you, you, or you see people doing stuff that you wish you could do and you think, I wish I had that. And it just, it feeds all of this stuff. If that's your experience of social media, what's the easiest thing to do? Get off it takes this much spirit self-controlled to delete the app. It takes this much to be on and not react. Stop the behavior. That's step two, though, right? What, what Ortberg said, he says, don't just resist a habit, replace it. And so the true power of this, this and this is scripture, this is Romans 6, is don't just stop what the bad thing, the negative thing, Start giving yourself to something different. Create a new habit to replace the old one. The old habit's still going to be there. It's going to linger there. But if you replace it, it's going to be much more powerful. So for example, ice cream example, right? If you don't replace that habit of every night having a bowl of ice cream at 10 o'clock, you're, you're going to struggle with it. Every night at 10 o'clock, your body's going to be going, hey, remember? This is when we do the ice cream thing. Remember? <laughs> Hello? You have to replace it with a new habit, form a new habit, something that, will, that your doctor would approve of, right? A cup of really good herbal tea or uh, a piece of fresh fruit that's in season or healthy popcorn or something. I don't know what it is. But if you cultivate a new habit that you replace it with, it's going to be a lot more powerful than if you just keep resisting the old habit. Replace it. What about the person who struggles with pornography? What do you do about that? What do you replace that with? The time spent scrolling, looking through images, what do you replace that with? Well, you replace it with something that feeds and nourishes your soul. Right? There's, there's, there's podcasts you can listen to. The Philippians, Paul writes this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Put that kind of content in front of you. 
You know, the Bible Project, our friends at Bible Project, we feature their videos every now and then. They're these brilliantly and succinctly animated and illustrated Bible truths. They're amazing. Each one of them is like, you know, anywhere from five to 10 minutes long at the most. But they have all kinds of discipleship paths that you can, you can subscribe to and you can, go, you can have them take you on a journey through Scripture. I promise you, if you're struggling with pornography and you replace it with that, when you're watching that, you're not going to, you're not going to have the same temptation to get on pornography. Right? Break the habit, replace it. Money once spent downloading or subscribing pornographic content can be reallocated to ministries that help women who've been trafficked. I think it was Pastor Try who I heard first, first person I heard say this. He said, when you pay for pornography, when you subscribe to, to those type of, that type of content, you're tithing to the devil. And you're funding an industry that objectifies and sexualizes and victimizes people. And so the money that you've spent on that, turn it to something else, the opposite, and, and, and pray and say, God, I, have, I repent. I have spent so much money on, on this and it objectifies and it victimizes. And would you change my heart? And as I give it to this, this agency that, that does this important work, would you bless and provide them? And would you change my heart? Would you form new habits of righteousness in me? Don't just resist a habit, replace it. And last, last point. If you, if you have a habit of doom scrolling, some sort of media feed and it's not good for you, replace it with media that is good for you. There's so much great content out there. Subscribe to a podcast that you don't have to look, to, look at. You can listen to it and you can go for a walk. You can get out and you can enjoy creation. You can enjoy loved ones. Or get out and garden. I'll close with this. Our, our garden that over the last, I don't know, two decades has fed people through our food pantry. So we grow fresh produce. As it's harvested, we give it to the food pantry. The food pantry passes it out along with our food boxes. This year, our garden is going to, to be given a rest. It's going to have a year of being fallow and just rest, which means we don't have that produce to give. What we're inviting you to do, and you're going to hear more about this in the coming weeks, we're inviting you to plant a garden and grow extra with the intention of giving it here, of giving it here to be given away. Now, that's something that's going to take some time, but if there's time that you've spent doing something that's not been helpful or productive or righteous in your life, do something good with it. Get out and partner with the creator and do something that will allow you to be generous and allow us to be generous. I'm going to close with a few questions. I'm not going to actually read these. I'm just going to put them up. And I know, well, we've talked a lot today, haven't we? These are questions for you to just consider prayerfully. I've tried to flesh these out with some examples of what these things might look like, but allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. It's the Holy Spirit who teaches us, who convicts us. Again, repentance is a miracle. It's a working of grace. It's not something you can just white knuckle. But here's what I believe. Here's what we believe as a leadership team. We believe that God is wanting to stir, just like God awakened, a spiritual awakening in a people who didn't know him. We believe that God's doing a spiritual awakening in the people who do know him. That there's so much more for us 
There's so much more for him. There's so much for the world around us. And so you might want to take a, a screenshot of this with your camera so you can come back to it. But we're just going to close with this. We're just going to make a few moments of silence. I'm just going to say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, would you teach us these this way of living, this way of repentance to consider ourselves as new creations, to stop the things that have been negative and destructive and damaging and to replace them with habits of righteousness. Right now, across this room, would you breathe creativity? Would you brood over us as you, as you brooded over the first creation? Would you brood over us and lead each one of us in how we might approach our lives and our own sanctification with you today? I believe that God is awakening hope in some of us who've given up trying to change. I believe he's uh, awakening repentance in some who have become hard-hearted, who've stopped even trying. I believe he's awakening strategies in us just wisdom to know here's how to cooperate with God. So I'm just asking you, I'm inviting you to pay attention to what God might be leading you in. I would encourage you, if, if there is something that God's asking you to do, consider sharing it with a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Could be our prayer team today. Share with somebody, say, would you pray with me? Could be a, a trusted friend but there's something powerful about articulating this is what God is doing in me and this is, this is what I want to move forward and this is my sanctification. Church, repentance looks like something. But it doesn't look like just saying I'm sorry again. It doesn't look like, like just throwing ourselves on the ground in tears. It looks like walking forward in spirit-empowered, grace-empowered transformation and change. 
this is what God has for us. You're not just saved, you're freed. You're freed from the power of indwelling sin by the power of the indwelling spirit. You have habits. God wants to give you new habits of righteousness. As we close today, our, we may have some words for prayer. If we do, we're going to put them on the screen here. Um, these are things that our ministry team sensed specifically that God wanted to meet today. We had uh, two healings yesterday out of the pantry, two, two reports of healing from people that had previously been prayed for at our food pantry. God is at work in our midst. God's at work here as much as he was in Nineveh. So infected toe, fluid in the lungs, pain in the neck, could be metaphorical. <laughs> Sadness and judging spirit. Those are things our prayer team sense. If you see yourself there especially, I want to invite you to, to uh, just come up front and our ministry team will partner with you in prayer. If you have something else that you came with as a need today and you'd like prayer, again, you're welcome to come up here and pray. Uh, our ministry team will join you in that prayer. Apart from that, um, go out and make the invisible God visible. And um, yeah, go with God. Amen. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.